not with the Second Amendment, but with, there we go, with um, the uh, third division of Bible study, which is application. So let me open in prayer before we get started. Father, we just continue to pray that you would um, give us guidance and direction as we think about studying your word, that we may come to understand it as you would have us to understand it, recognizing that you revealed this to us for a purpose, and that is that it would be properly understood and then properly applied in our lives, that the end game of Bible study is application, that is the transformation of our uh, character more and more to be like that of the Lord Jesus Christ that the ultimate purpose of Bible study, therefore, is change, change from the inside out. Now, Father, we pray you'd guide and direct our thinking tonight as we study about application, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start off tonight with the verse I began with at the very beginning, which is 2 Timothy 3.16. a verse that's familiar to all of us, that all Scripture is inspired or God-breathed and is profitable for what? What's the first word? For teaching or doctrine, as the King James had it. It's really the idea of instruction. So the first thing we get from the Word of God is instruction. It's teaching. It's uh, uh, training us in a particular way of life. For reproof, reproof means it tells us we're wrong. It's amazing how many people don't really like that. They don't want to go to church and hear that they're doing anything wrong or believe anything wrong. Uh, They just want to be uh, affirmed in whatever errors they're in. So it's going to instruct us. It's going to tell us where we're wrong. It's going to tell us how to correct and straighten out the areas where we are wrong And then it's for training or equipping in righteousness. The word that's translated uh, training there is uh, a cognate of the word or another form of the word that we have in Ephesians uh, 4, 11, and 12, talking about the role of pastor, teachers, and evangelists are to equip the saints. It's it's another form of the same, same root word. So that's the purpose, is to train us, in righteousness or equip us in righteousness. So the end game isn't just learning. The end game isn't just intellectual stimulation. And trust me, with Bible study, there's a a lot of intellectual stimulation. There's so much to learn. We can study a lifetime. You can get involved in different areas of theology, different areas of apologetics, uh, different areas of language studies. All of these different things are uh, mentally uh, and and uh, uh, intellectually stimulating. You can learn about history. All manner of topics come under the purview of Bible study. And a lot of people are attracted to Bible study simply for the intellectual stimulation, and it ends there. But the end game in, in, in terms of Bible study in Scripture is always internal transformation, and that comes from the third stage of Bible study, which is uh, application. Now, I wanted to take a little time to talk about or just to introduce this concept of application and talk about some of the terminology that we use. 
And I'm going to say some things that you won't find anywhere else. I've never read this. These are just some uh, uh, thoughts that I've come up with in the last two or three years as I've tried to probe the concept of application. What does it mean to apply the word? Now, as we've gone through Bible study, we've looked at the topic initially of observation, that we need to ask the question, what does the text say? And we can spend a tremendous amount of time in observation. The more time we spend in observation, the less time we really have to spend in either interpretation or application, as I stated earlier. In observation, we're looking at what does the text say. We're looking at its structure. We're looking at the grammar. We're looking at the word, the meanings of the words in the original language. We're looking at the uh, immediate context in terms of the surrounding verses. We're looking at the broader context, see how the word fits within the overall scope of the book. Classic example is Acts 1-8, looking at uh, that as a, giving the structure for the entire uh, book of Acts, that the uh, mission of the disciples who had become the apostles was to take uh, was to be witnesses of Jesus Christ after the Holy Spirit came and and, and witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost part of the earth. So we had concentric circles of application. Now, once we look at a verse like let's just go to Acts one eight, we spend a lot of time in application. I mean, in observation, we're answering questions related to who is speaking, to whom are they speaking, and what are they saying. So in the original context, who is speaking? This isn't rocket science. Jesus. To whom is he speaking? To the eleven. And what he tells them is that it's not for them to know the times or the, or the seasons, uh, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but he says, in contrast, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So to whom is he speaking? His disciples. He says, you will be my witnesses. Who are supposed to be his witnesses? In context, his disciples, does that, in terms of interpretation, what, how does that correlate to anyone other than the 11 or 12 disciples? Well, they're an example. Yeah, they're an example. See, see, at this stage, we have to say, is he talking, giving a mission that is restricted to only those to whom he is speaking? Or is there a broader application slash implication of that verse? Both, both what? Both of what you just said. Both application and implication. How do we know that? Well, okay, how? Because it's pretty straightforward that we need to be disciples, right? But we didn't live back then, right? So right. So how do we how do we make that leap? How do we make that transference? From the original audience to whom he is speaking, he's given, he's given a mission statement here to the apostles. Where do we see that, that it, how do we know that that's transferred beyond the apostles? Great Commission. Well, again, who's he talking to in the Great Commission? 
he's telling his disciples to go and teach all nations and make more disciples. Okay. Uh, are there any other ways that we could demonstrate that transference? The apostles themselves said, "Now go out and do our Where? Because you taught us so." <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think. See, this is what I like. To, uh, what I, I, I'm, I'm working through this same at the same time you are. So what? But what would you want to do here? Let's look at your root word here is to be witnesses, and then let's just search. That's going to pop up on the other on my other screen. I wish it wouldn't do that, but okay. Just telling the apostles if if nothing happened after well, them. It depends well, on what they're witnessing because they're they're. You can also that, take it that they're the right, ones that, that actually saw something. That, that's a good question, but see, this is this is really a tough question because you get into passages like John 14, and Jesus is t- giving a lot of direction to the apostles, like when I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come to you and will uh, remind you of all things that I have taught you. Was, is there an application of that to an to a group beyond the apostles? That's a big. Uh, That's an important question because <laughs> because only the apostles are writers of scripture, and only and 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 not even all of the not not even all the writers of the gospels. For example, Luke and Mark are part of that that crowd. So Jesus is talking to them. And he's saying that the Holy Spirit will remind you. And he's, he's really not talking about the writing of the of the Gospels per se, as much as he's talking about their teaching about his life. And so they're going to be teaching about Jesus and about what he taught. But does that have? Does that mean that would that apply to anybody beyond that inner circle? How could? And I'm going to, I'm, I'm really focusing on how we use, I think we misuse or we use these words apply and we shape, we, we use it with different meanings and we shift from one to the other without thinking about it. How can the Holy Spirit remind Ignatius, who lives in the next century, of what Jesus taught and did in the first century when Ignatius was never there to begin with. Well, I think that you have to go to Scripture to answer that question, right? To see what the ministries of the Spirit... Yeah, he can't do that. Because, I mean, the very concept of reminding you of what I, I said and did indicates that that they were. it only applies to eyewitnesses. It doesn't apply to those who are coming in later generations. Is there an implication? See, this is what I'm driving at. We have the term application we often think of is how I can take what the Scripture says and it makes a difference in my life. What I'm suggesting is that the term application is a broad term, and sometimes what we call it application isn't the same as an implication. And we need to think about that a little more precisely. I know this is going to burn some brain cells. But 
in Acts, what I did was I looked at that key word to be witnesses, and um, we go through and look at how this is used as we go through uh, the book of Acts. And we look at other passages, and I can't remember the context of all of these, but I think that you can make a case. Stephen was a witness there. It's described in Acts 22.20, when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed. Okay, was Stephen sitting there in Acts 1.8 listening to that? No. So, see, what I've done is I'm not arguing, as Jeff was, from a theological principle, okay? We, we do that too easily. What I'm demonstrating is can we show that there was an expectation of those beyond the immediate 11 disciples for the secondary believers, the tertiary believers, uh, the believers who came along on the day of Pentecost and after, that they were expected to be witnesses as well. And here we have an example that Stephen was a witness. So the witness, the, the command to be a witness, even though the immediate audience was composed of the, of the twelve, it was, the Lord was speaking to the whole church through the apostles. That's an important statement. Because when you get into passages in John, especially in the upper room discourse, it's it's real difficult sometimes to determine if Jesus is just talking and giving directions to the uh, disciples in terms of their function as an apostle, and when he's talking to them in ter- through them to the whole church, and and some sometimes it gets real difficult to to discern that. But what we have to do is use um, a methodology whereby we can demonstrate uh, that there is was an expected application beyond the immediate audience. And in some cases, for example, in uh, reminding people of the what what Jesus had done and said, that that can't go beyond the immediate audience because the very concept of reminding somebody of something indicates that they were there to hear it and to see it originally. So the Holy Spirit can't remind you of something that you didn't originally see and hear. So that would indicate that that command was related only to the the initial audience. Where it just be, though, uh, The definition is... It, it's a dual definition because a witness is, a, it, as such as an eyewitness, is what you're talking about in one thing. And a witness for the other is being, um, is, is almost like synonymous with a disciple. Well, I'm not sure I follow you, but I think what you're trying to say is that um, looking at the meaning of the word, what does it mean to be a witness? And so we have to, and that's important, you have to go through and do your work in in terms of a word study, to see what does it mean to be a witness. And it may, in some contexts, it may mean the idea of being an eyewitness. In other contexts, it is telling people about who Jesus Christ was and what he did that 
that um, you're a witness of the truth of the gospel. So we have to what are, look at the content of what the, the witness is about. Which is, these are written? Yeah. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ? Wouldn't that be synonymous in a way? Well, I mean, if you believe. Yeah, John is saying that these, that what I've written is so that you, whoever the audience is, they, that these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So that's just talking to uh, whomever is reading the gospel. John is. John has witnessed. He's done that. It seemed like it would carry on. Yeah, yeah but, but, you, but he, he's doing that. But, but, see, but by by showing that the term witness is used beyond those who were immediate eyewitnesses or in that original context, you're showing that this is a mission that is not uh, restricted to just the eleven. You're, you're you're using evidence. You're not just assuming it. Because this makes sense. That's what I'm trying to get at. You can't reach conclusions because it seems logical and it just makes sense. You've got to be able to demonstrate it from the text. It's just like when you're a forensic scientist and you're at a crime scene, you may know who the murderer is or you may think you know who the murderer is, but you still have to document it with evidence. You can't just jump to the conclusion because it seems to fit all the data. You've got to nail all those details down. And this is what I'm talking about here. This is how we show that. Now, what, Jeff? Well, go ahead. I think you're getting ready to answer my question. Okay. Now, I wanted to go to another passage to talk about this concept of application. We go to Acts chapter 9, which is the... Uh, conversion of the Apostle Paul. And after Paul has been confronted by the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, in verse 4, Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, are you persecuting me? And Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord answered and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Then we look at verse 6. Get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. What is the application of verse 6? Remember, I talked about the fact, don't don't let this confuse you. I talked about the fact that there's one interpretation, but there there can be or there might be many applications. How many applications are there to verse 6? One. Yeah. And, 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 to whom is Jesus speaking? Saul. So how many people can apply verse 6? Only Paul. Saul at the time. Yeah, Saul at the time. But only, only Paul can apply that because the command is given only to him. My point is that there are certain commands that are given to specific people. They're not given to an entire group of people. So let's look at another another one to sort of um, round this out a little bit. Let's look at um, Exodus 20. 
Exodus 20, you have the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words. The Decalogue. Okay, let's look at... Um, Let's look down at verse verse uh, 13. You shall not commit murder. Who's speaking? God. God's speaking. To whom is he speaking? Israel. Nation of Israel. Nation of Israel. So, what is, who, what's the application of Verse 13. Israel yeah, Israelites, very good. See, so you're, you're, you're thinking now. Israelites are prohibited from committing murder. That's the application. Is it the same, an application on the same order to say that Assyrians shouldn't commit murder? No. You may say, oh, well, you're splitting hairs. Well, you're going to see where there's a difference here later on. Is the application, if the application of this verse is to, is to Israel, see, the interpretation relates to Israel, but the application must also, because it's the Mosaic law, God never expects or requires unbelievers to obey the Mosaic law. But the Mosaic law does not make, is not the basis for making thievery, or murder sins. Okay? This is simply an instance where the, 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 the ethical absolute prohibiting murder is incorporated within a legal document directed to Israel. So the application of everything, obedience to the law is application of the law. And it can only, the law can only be applied by Israel because it's only directed to Israel. Now I'm going to make a distinction here because I think that there are things we can learn from the law. There are patterns in the law. We can go to the law and see, uh, basically principles of economics within the Mosaic law. But the the law itself, which directs a certain type of economic activity, for example, not working on the working, you shall work. See, most people think of the the Sabbath law as a prohibition of working on the Sabbath, but it starts off with a positive command: you shall work. In fact, there's like four or five imperatives in that whole sabbatical law: you shall work six days. See, it's not as much a command not to work on the seventh as it is a command to work for six days. So that's an economic economic law. Does that apply? Does that apply to Assyrians or Egyptians? No. No, but they could benefit. Right. Does it have an implication? And I think it has implications. So when we go, a lot of times. And this is true for many of us as Christian conservatives. We can go to the Mosaic Law and look at patterns that are there. Because we can learn, how, how does this really, it's not that it applies to us, and I'm splitting hairs on these, these word meanings, because application in some passage passages are limited, just like what the Lord said to Paul only applies to Paul. 
What other word would we use other than application? But when we look at the Mosaic law, it applies only to Israel. And if we say, well, you know, that applies to us also, I'm suggesting that we have just shifted the meaning of the word application. Isn't that a logical fallacy, John? Equivocation. John's read logical fallacies. I know that. I, I, I don't remember them all. But see, that's that's what happens is you shift the meaning of the term, either broaden it or narrow it, and you've moved from 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 using it in the same way, uh, the way you use it in one ter- one reference. Now you're using it in a different way in another reference, and and you you you've made this shift, and nobody's been aware of the fact that you've made the shift. We're really talking about uh, implication of of a, a command to somebody that that um, for example, and this is a you've heard me use this illustration a lot in talking about covenants that my next door neighbor enters into a contract uh, in terms of his mortgage, and he's got his mortgage with you know with, with Chase Bank, and I've got my mortgage with Frost Bank, and the mortgage contracts will be very similar but i can't apply anything from his to mine because that contract applies only to him and he can't apply anything to mine but there are implications there are correlations that you can make i'm just, and i'm making that kind of a distinction and let's go to another passage which is a very well known passage Second Chronicles seven fourteen. My people who are called by my name um, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, and I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Who's speaking? God is speaking. To whom is God speaking? That's correct. He's speaking to Solomon. What's the context? Dedication prayer in the temple, right? Right. Dedication prayer in the temple. Solomon has prayed a prayer going back into the previous chapter, and he has he has prayed in his prayer of dedication all of these things related to God and. Um, and he basically is rehearsing all the judgments in the in the cycles of discipline, and then he prays that um, you know if there's a, back in verse 28 of chapter six, if there's famine in the land, pestilence, blight, mildew, locusts. These are all part of the judgments. Whatever prayer or supplication made by any man by all your people Israel, each knowing his own affliction, his own pain, spreading his hands, then here, then he's, then this is his supplication to God. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men. And then he goes on and he talks about other things that when they go out to battle, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then down in verse 30, uh, 738 says, they take thought in the land where they're taken captive. This is, this is just like Deuteronomy 28, I mean 29 and 30. If they, they take thought in the land where they're taken captive, now they're out under the fifth cycle of discipline. 
If they take thought in the land where they're captive and repent, shuv, turn, and make supplication to you in the land of their captivity, saying, we've sinned, we've committed iniquity, and have acted wickedly, wickedly. So they're confessing their sin, their national sin, turning back to God. If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity where they have been taken captive and pray toward the, their land which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward the house which I built for your name, then hear from heaven, that's his petition to God in verse 39, hear from heaven from your dwelling place their prayer and supplications and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. And then he goes on to pray that God would... Um, n- would 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 restore them. Now when we get into chapter 7, God answers and he says, I've heard your prayer and chosen this place as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, so if I do all these things is basically what he what he is saying, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and will heal their land. So contextually, God is answering the prayer of Solomon. Solomon's prayer was based on uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 29, that if God brought all these uh, punishments upon Israel for their disobedience, he's praying, God, just be faithful to your promise that if they turn, you will restore them to the land. Solomon is assuming they're going to be disobedient and get kicked out of the land because that's what Deuteronomy indicated. And so the principle here is that if my people, who are my people? Israel. Israel. How do you know that? Hmm? Context. What do you do to determine who my people are? You look back at, at, at what comes before. Yeah, but specifically, you want to look at every use of the phrase my people. Does the phrase my people ever refer to anybody other than the Israelites? Never. It always refers to Israel. So, Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, which is quoted by so many people, uh, so many Christians today in relation to the spiritual decline in the U.S., they are applying this to the United States. Is it right to apply this to, to the United States? No. Or is the, and, and what, what I'm going to show you now is that this is really an application of a broader principle. Okay, but this, what? So you're saying that the extrapolation of principles is not a part of the application? Yeah, you've got to make sure that the principle can be extrapolated. See, this, this, is, is this stating a principle or is this an application of a principle? Well, this is, this prayer is an application of... of yeah, this prayer is an application of, 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 first of all, it's an application of, of the promise of Deuteronomy. Or to honor his contract. Right. And so it's specifically, it's just like the commands thou shalt, to Israel, thou shalt not murder. We're talking about specific commands to a specific group of people, and this is related to that. It's not really related to anybody else. And people really stumble over this because they've heard this abused by so many people so much. My people refers to Israel. You can't apply anything related that's Israel-specific under the Mosaic Law to anybody else. The Bible never applies it to anybody else. Never does. God never holds Gentile nations accountable to anything that is specific to the Mosaic Covenant. 
They're held accountable and they're punished for the way they treat Israel, which goes back to Genesis 12, uh, 2, that if, that if those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. It goes back to idolatry, which goes back to the Noahic covenant. But they're never condemned for things that are Mosaic covenant specific. They're never condemned for violating the Sabbath, but Israel's condemned all through the prophets for violating the Sabbath. Uh, Israel's condemned for violating the Mosaic law numerous times, but Gentiles are never condemned for anything that is specific to the Mosaic law. So, so let me offer, so the Mosaic law says don't sacrifice your children, right? Uh-huh. If we live in a culture today where children are sacrificed to gods, that's going to incur some discipline. I know it's not the same thing because there's no contract with us. Right. Well, okay, what's the principle? The principle is that these laws were given to show how to please a holy God. No, we want no, to please that same holy no, God. No, they were not given for that reason. They were given to Israel to teach Israel how they were specifically supposed to live before God. They weren't given for the general. See, we this is a problem that we have in we have to be careful with universalizing principles from specific passages because some applications, like Acts 9 and like the, the Ten Commandments, can't be universalized because they are, in terms of the interpretation, they're restricted to only a certain number, certain group of people. Go back to the principle. Let me help you think through this. Thou shalt not murder does not is not the basis for making murder wrong. It is a, an application of a principle that was established in Genesis 4. Genesis 4 establishes the, the wrongness of committing murder, not Exodus 20. Same thing with you. Child sacrifice is murder. That's, that's prohibited on the basis of Genesis 4, not something in the Mosaic Law. What's in the Mosaic Law is an application of something that is a broader, uh, a broader, uh, either prohibition or admonition to, to everybody. Let me give you, a, let me show you what, what I mean here. Let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18. I'm the right, yeah, I'm in the right chapter. Um, I always had trouble finding this verse. Okay, here we go. It starts in, actually it starts in verse 6. It's talking about the potter and the clay. Now there's, here he's applying, he's going to state the universal principle in this chapter. But he's applying it to Israel. He says, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, as the potter deals with his clay? says the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or destroy it. Is that a specific command to a specific people, a specific nation, or is that a universal principle? This is the statement of the universal principle. 
that God in his sovereignty can raise up or tear down a nation according to his will. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Is that a statement of a principle that is nation-specific? No. No. First, Second Chronicles 7.14 is nation-specific, and it's related specifically to the, the Mosaic Covenant. It is an instance, an application of this universal principle. This is the universal principle. Second Chronicles 7.14 is an application of this principle because this is stated in terms of a universal principle. Acts 7.14, I mean, Second Chronicles 7.14 is not stated in the form of a universal principle. Uh, it's because it's specifically related. If my people who are called by my name will what? Repent. Will repent, then I will what? I will restore the land. That's not America. That's not England. The only one piece of real estate is related to a divine promise, and that's over in Israel. So it can't apply to anybody else because nobody else has a land covenant with God. Nobody, no other ethnic ethnicity or ethnic group in the history of the world has has a um, a, a, a God given contract to the ownership of their land. Comanches didn't. Mexicans don't. Texans don't. We don't like that, but we don't. That's that's reality. If a, and then he goes on to say in verse 8, If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring. Notice it's that nation. He's talking in general universal terms. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promise to bless it. This is what happens in Nineveh. With with Jonah, Jonah goes. He warns them that God's going to destroy them. They turn to God, and God relents of His promise. And it's two hundred more years before He destroys the uh, uh, destroys Nineveh. So that's the point I'm making. We have to think more precisely. There are promises in the Scripture that are given to Israel that are specifically contextualized because they relate to specifics in the Mosaic Law. And we have to be careful not to jump to application and say, see, this relates to the United States. Second Chronicles 7.14 doesn't relate to anybody but Israel because it's got two issues in there. My people, can't say that today, are, are the United, is the United States my people? No, in this age, the church... Christians are my people. They are supranational. That is, they're not related to any specific nation or ethnicity. So my people is a major problem. It restricts the application. Now, is there an implication of that verse? Yes. But the better verse to go to, if you want to teach the principle that if a people in a nation will turn back to God, God will bless them. Go here. Don't go to Second Chronicles 7.14 because then you're ripping a verse out of context. Okay, we need to take a break. I want to cover all that at one time. That's just how we start off talking about this whole issue of application. What does it mean to apply Scripture? Now, maybe 
uh, splitting hairs there, but it does play a role when we get into some kinds of passages, especially in the Gospels and especially in the Old Testament. So we'll take a break here for about five, six minutes, and then we'll come back. <laughs> 